0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media.
1: Good morning, everybody. On behalf of the U.S. Institute of Peace, I want to welcome you to the public event building peace from the bottom up, post-war peace building, and local level intervention. My name is Kathleen Keenist, and I direct the gender strategy and policy team here at USIP. 34 years ago, USIP was founded by Congress as an independent national institute dedicated to the proposition that peace is possible, it's practical, and essential for US and global security. We are very pleased today to be co-hosting this event with the Conflict Analysis and Resolution Center at George Mason University. The theme of this event is in line with our core principles on partnerships, as we know that our impact is wider and more enduring when we work together on research with academic partners to gain a greater understanding about the practice of peace and how to better measure its impact. We come together today around the recent work of Dr. Pamina Furchow, Assistant Professor of Conflict Analysis and Resolution at George Mason, and also a former USIP Senior Jenner Jennings Randolph Fellow. About... Five, six months ago, Pamina and I were having coffee, and I'm an anthropologist, so this work really speaks to me at a core level. And I said, we really need to amplify this work, and I was excited to take on the opportunity to highlight this latest work of um, Pamina's called Reclaiming Everyday Peace, Local Voices in Measurement and Evaluation After War. And we're going to hear a lot more about it over the next hour and a half. I'm thrilled that we have a terrific group of experts who will shed further light on this nexus of work on peace building. And also uh, to help introduce this morning, I am very thrilled to invite a fellow anthropologist, Dr. Kevin Avruk, who is Dean of the Henry Hart. Rice, Professor of Conflict Resolution and Professor of Anthropology at the School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution at George Mason. I thought my title was very long, but Kevin, (laughs) he has published more than 70 articles and essays and is the author, editor of six books, including a book that USIP published in 1998, Culture and Conflict Resolution one that is followed by many uh, students of peace building and certainly experts refer to it regularly. He was a senior fellow here at uh, the Jennings-Randolph Program for International Peace. He's also been a John B. Kroc Peace Scholar at the Kroc School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego and a Fulbright Specialist at the Malva- via Peace Research Center. And so, Kevin, I invite you to the podium to uh, share some opening remarks and to introduce our guest,
2: Pamina. So I want to use um, my time to place Pamina's work in the context of the field, uh, in a sense, genealogically in the context of of the field. Mina's book is, is one step and a really important step in a trajectory of peace and conflict studies that goes back 30, 35 years at least. And this is a trajectory of work in theory, in research, and in practice that moves us from one binary to another. It moves us from the universal to the particular from templates to contexts, from outsiders to insiders, from elites to locals, from prescription to elicitation, from expertise and expert systems to participation and partnership. Uh, Kathleen referred to my own uh, part in this movement, which began in the 1980s uh, with my colleague Peter Black at George Mason with our insistence that both for conflict analysis and for resolution, one must pay attention to culture, that is to significant cultural differences, beginning with the insight that not everyone negotiates the same way This was the heyday of getting to yes as a foundational book. Um, That not everyone negotiates the same way in English and that if there are communicational impedances, you just needed to speak slower and louder. So we argued for the importance of culture and in 1990. Six, uh, I was fortunate to be awarded a Jennings Randall Fellowship uh, for a a project that was then called Discourses of Culture in Conflict Resolution. Now, whatever the definitional quagmires that surround the notion of of culture, and there are many, and whatever its resistance to operationalization It is, in the end, mainly a shorthand for talking about context. The context is political, economic, sociological, psychological, and and existential. I think what was radical then in 1980, using the notion of culture to kind of crack open the uh, hard-shelled egg of what was then approaches to conflict resolution based in game theory and kind of behaviorism. You know, culture has, has, has seen its day. I think now notions like discourse and narrative are probably much more generative of uh, interesting work. More, moreover, coming to culture as an anthropologist uh, implied for, for me uh, a methodology and the methodology was, not surprisingly, ethnography, which was close to the ground. Uh, it was a concentration on the local, uh, concentration often not on the elites, but on the villagers, if you will, uh, and, and a concentra- concentration on local knowledge, on what Pamina calls indigenous technical knowledge. Now... At, at the same time that Peter Black and, and I were, were pushing culture, um, that master scholar practitioner, John Paul Lederach, was addressing two of the issues that I mentioned. And interestingly, uh, they were uh, mentioned, they were elaborated in two books also published by Yusuf by Press. Firstly, on the matter of valuing the local, he proposed the now iconic pyramid that I think many of you have seen of um, a schematic for peace building in a book called Peace Building. The elite level, the middle level, and what he called the grassroots. And like any pyramid, it was widest at the bottom because there were always more villagers and peasants than there were ministers and professors. And in a way, that argument was the first time, to my knowledge, that we in the field were directed to look, to look down, to look at the grassroots. And I actually remember being with John Paul. This was when we were involved in the late 90s in Somalia and then in in Haiti, Um, I remember John Paul presenting this work to folks mainly from the Department of of, uh, Defense, Um, and there was a lot of non-comprehension in the room. Let me put it that way. The notion that, first of all, the military had anything to learn from civilian peace builders, but particularly that had to pay attention to the, the grassroots. Now, for John paul the grassroots level was was still fairly monolithic. I mean, he didn't differentiate very, very much on different kinds of grassroots, not only on the local, but what is today called in that literature the local-local. I mean, even going beyond the kind of local elites. These are local elites that not so ironically, tend to be thrown up by outside intervention and resources coming in, uh, not driving the white land cruisers themselves, but right, right around them. So there was that. And on the matter of participation that I mentioned in a different book, Lederach proposed the distinction for third-party interveners of prescriptive approaches, where one comes in with, uh, you know, have process will travel, and elicitive approaches, which is when one tries to draw out from uh, the folks their own ethno conflict models, their own models of what causes conflict, and their own ethnopraxies, their own indigenous modalities of conflict resolution. And of course, all societies have, have both. And then, of course, with other kinds of interventions, the notion of nation building, which is really state building, and the liberal peace, which is making the world safe for foreign direct investment, um, and the many, many critiques that, that, that follow. So this, to me, is the, the genealogy into which Pameen is very, very important book sits. And it's important for a variety of of reasons. First of all, um, it it offers us a very nuanced sense of what peace looks like, what she calls small p-peace looks like. And it gets us past the seminal, but in many ways still the stultifying distinction between positive peace and negative peace, in part by conceptualizing positive peace in terms like social cohesion and human rights and conflict resolution at the local level, and negative peace in terms of the distance in time and in space from actual physical violence so that peace looks different the further a community is from the actual traumas of physical violence. Secondly, um, it is a great improvement methodologically, although um, Pamina has heard me grumble more than once that I think, in many cases, methodology is the last refuge of scoundrels. Um, it is it is a great improvement, certainly upon my approach, which would have been an ethnographic approach, because it is one that uses mixed mixed methods and uh, and attention to hybridity in a very, very robust way. And I hope you'll say something uh, about that. Uh, it is an important contribution inter alia to the ethics of practice and the ethics of peace building. If Only for the simple reason that if you go in with a universal template and you go in prescriptively, and you go in uh, not differentiating communities, you are as likely to do bad as you are to do good. And those are at root the ethical questions that we need to begin with, which is the do no harm. It's not an entire ethics of practice, but it's a foundational one. And finally, um, it is important because... And I know that Pamina deeply considers herself a scholar and a a researcher, but to me it is a really important work that informs practice. It is a work that practitioners ought to read and also a work that donors ought to read. And the education of donors is probably the most difficult uh, task that that we face. Um, And I hope that this book, which is one step on this trajectory of looking at the local and looking at context in a very methodologically vigorous way, will have resonance not just in the world of peace theory and peace science, but in the world of practice. And that is why uh, we are very, very happy to have Pamina as a colleague, at ESCAR, because whatever our our sins are, and they are legion, and I'm Dean, so I've hidden most of them from people, we are certainly committed always to making our scholarship and our research engaged with the world and to hold up the ideal of the scholar practitioner as the uh, true icon for what is, at root, a normative field. So Pamina is uh, Assistant Professor of Conflict Analysis and Resolution at ESCAR. She is, as Kathleen said, a former uh, USIP uh, Jennings Randolph Fellow. Uh, And her main research uh, surrounds the study, as you'll hear, of international accompaniment in communities. That doesn't play as important a part in, in, in this book, except that it brought her close uh, and experience near, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa and in Latin America, in uh, Uganda and in Colombia, and, and that's where the, the, the main case studies come from. Um, I won't take more time because I want you to present your own work, but as dean, I'm very happy to count you as a, as a colleague and very happy to help welcome this book and this research into the world.
3: Thank you so much, Kevin. Uh, First of all, I want to thank you all for being here and for your interest um, and support of finding ways uh, to amplify the voices um, of people who may be neglected or marginalized. Uh, in peace building and development work. Uh, I would also like to thank Dr. Kathleen Kunast for her support throughout my time at USIP, uh, in part because of her encouragement. Uh, I continue to be involved in consultancies at USIP uh, and am now leading a significant project with the Institute on Reconciliation Indicators um, and their use for USAID project planning and evaluation in Sri Lanka. Uh, I want to thank Kathleen and also Tina Hegedorn for their help and hard work in making this event happen. Uh, This book and the Everyday Peace Indicators Project more broadly address one central and overarching question. How do we measure peace and what are the results? I came to be concerned with this question uh, early on in my career as an activist and peace builder working on disarmament and conventional weapons issues in D.C. and London. I was bothered by the patronizing ways uh, in which we often would prescribe solutions for war-affected countries and communities uh, without consulting them first um, or considering that they might have knowledge to help combat issues related to their own peace and security. Uh, So it was fortuitous uh, that I met Roger McGinty while we were at uh, the University of Notre Dame, and we were fortunate enough to be funded quite early by uh, the Carnegie Corporation of New York to pilot the utility and potential of the everyday indicators for measurement and evaluation purposes in the peace-building field. So my book, Reclaiming Everyday Peace, Uh, provides conceptual and methodological discussion about the utility of participatory numbers, that is, numbers that are generated from the bottom up using rapid rural appraisal techniques, uh, such as the Everyday Peace Indicators approach, and explores the challenges with top-down measurement approaches of difficult-to-measure concepts uh, such as peace and reconciliation. Since the 1950s, the measurement of peace uh, has evolved significantly, although much of measuring peace still primarily involves measuring armed conflict and war, uh, such as what is done by database programs, such as the Correlates of War program, which some of you may have heard of, or the Uppsala Conflict Database Program. Uh, There have been some other uh, global attempts at measuring peace, most notably the Global global Peace Index uh, and the Reconciliation Barometers, um, such as the South African uh, Barometer, um, which um, uh, emerged in 2003, and more recently the SCORE Project, Um, In addition, there are project-level evaluations now um, uh, in monitoring and evaluation of peace-building work, in some cases, uh, that attempt to measure impact on peace and reconciliation, uh, primarily using randomized control trials. All of these efforts have in common that they are top-down, external, and prioritize expert indicators. So why is this problematic, and for whom is it problematic? The challenges with, top-down process, with the top-down process of indicator generation and quantitative measurement uh, is reflected in the debates between interpretivists and positivists, where interpretivists are generally more concerned with capturing all attributes of a concept, as well as the, relative, the relativity of concepts, uh, whereas positivists are more concerned with what is measurable and generalizable Uh, and identified as belonging in a conceptual data container. Although these contrasts are somewhat of an epistemological caricature, they represent some of the main methodological tensions that exist between scholars working from these different standpoints and represent the potential bridges the everyday indicators and participatory numbers more broadly could build. This extends to those concerned with who is prioritized and represented in measurement and indicator development processes, which have become crucially important for procuring resources, as we all know, and funding in the development and peacebuilding sectors. The quantification and measurement of impact in these sectors has skyrocketed. And evidence-based decision-making has become the norm with the professionalization of the development and peace-building industries since the 1980s. For the most part, without numbers behind something, there is no hope for advocating on its behalf. Therefore, these numbers, uh, which are usually based on indicators are of incredible importance and should therefore be based on the needs and priorities of recipients of assistance than the understandings rather than the understandings of what outside actors and experts believe is necessary. So how does the everyday indicator approach address these debates? The everyday indicator approach uses existing indicators based on indigenous technical knowledge, as Kevin mentioned, which is the body of knowledge generated or acquired by local people through the accumulation of everyday experiences, community interactions, and trial and error that people use in their daily lives uh, to determine whether they are more or less at peace. The everyday peace indicators systematically capture these indicators and analyzes them in order to be able to say something quantitatively about local peacefulness according to locally generated indicators of peace. So for example, an indicator like being able to walk alone at night might be coded into a daily security category, or an indicator like antennas on rooftops may be coded into an infrastructure category These categories are then aggregated into dimensions like security or development. Instead of using everyday people exclusively as data sources, like more traditional and top-down approaches do, the everyday indicators involve people, and this is key, in the generation of the tools to collect the data, the quantitative data, as well as sourcing them of data. This also increases measurement validity for those of you who are concerned about these matters. um, As we are able to be more certain that what we are measuring is peace or reconciliation or whatever difficult-to-measure concept we are trying to say something about according to local definitions of what that means to people in a particular locality. I don't have time today to go over the methodology in detail, uh, but there is much more to be learned, and there is much more available on our website at everydaypeaceindicators.org um, if you are interested. Uh, so, and also obviously in the book. <laughs> um, the book goes on to use the Everyday Peace Indicator methodology to make claims about peace building effectiveness at the local level using quasi experimental matched case studies of villages in Uganda and Colombia. Villages had as similar as possible demographics, histories of violence and displacement, religious and ethnic composition, but vastly different levels of external intervention after the violent events. Villages were matched for their similarities in everything but the amount of intervention with the goal of matching villages that had little to no intervention with villages that received enormous amounts of external interventions. And these villages um, had uh, received a reputation among the international community as laboratories for peace in their countries. My findings show that the localities with high levels of intervention particularly prioritized social issues, such as community cohesion, interdependence, and conflict resolution over security and development when identifying their everyday peace. This is important because these are the areas of intervention that were least attended to by external actors in these villages. Therefore, perhaps unsurprisingly, Localities that were saturated with high levels of interventions did not have substantively higher levels of peacefulness, according to these community-generated indicators of everyday peace. The results suggest that there are disparities between what localities need when identifying peace in their communities and the interventions external actors prioritize. In their peace building and reconstruction efforts. Interestingly, uh, the localities with more intervention reported higher levels of development in comparison to the communities with little intervention. So that demonstrates that development interfe- interventions were effective at attending to develop community development needs. However, they also reported higher levels of insecurity, which indicates that with these reconstruction efforts after war, there are significantly, significant security risks to communities, but also that they don't have the social structures available to protect themselves. And they have an innate feeling or sense of insecurity. My findings suggest that conflict-affected communities with large amounts of assistance in reconstruction and development require more interventions pertaining uh, to social cohesion and community social relations than those with little to no assistance. Infrastructure, security, and development projects are often, usually, prioritized over relationship building. And actors often end up substituting the building of a road for real engagement with the root causes of a conflict. However, these localities are actually much more in need of these kinds of relation building efforts that can be supported by the international peace building community than those that have had to rely on their own efforts in reconstructing their communities after war. In addition, uh, the localities in this study prioritized social and development related indicators when defining their everyday peace. However, overall, people chose indicators that fell into multiple categories, representing both positive and negative peace, demonstrating the multidimensionality or de- the multidimensionality of peace. This is relevant for empirical measurement since the majority of top-down attempts, as we've already covered, at measuring peace use indicators that focus primarily on violence reduction. Also, the fact that people define and identify peace differently from context to context over time has major implications for how we design and evaluate programming, as is reflected in this passage from the conclusion of the book. In a follow-up focus group in Atiyak, I found myself debating with the participants about an indicator they wanted to eliminate from the original indicators list developed by the community three years prior and used in this study. I was in Uganda to reconvene community members from Atiyak and Odek to test and update the initial list of selected indicators. This particular group in Atiyak was insisting that one of their previously selected indicators was no longer relevant. Incidentally, the indicator in question was the only indicator used by EPI, or the Everyday Peace Indicators, that is included in the measurement of SDG 16, the Sustainable Development Goal 16, walking alone safely at night. I argued to the group that actually this would be a good measurement of peace in their community, but the villagers did not agree. They insisted that this particular indicator was now obsolete since no one in the community felt safe to walk alone at night any longer due to increased insecurity. Therefore, it could no longer be considered an everyday measure of peace. With recent crime waves precipitated in part by the large influx of South Sudanese refugees to camps near Atiyak, the perceived insecurity of villagers had increased dramatically so much so that they no longer dared leave their homes alone in the evenings. Therefore, the indicator had lost its utility for helping villagers to assess whether they felt more or less at peace. As we can see, how people understand and identify peace is not only multi-dimensional, but uh, is also multi-temporal and changes over time. Therefore, the findings of this study have major implications for how we measure peace conceptually, as well as how we measure peace-building effectiveness on a project level. It demonstrates the importance of including localities in the generation of statistics and numbers, and not just treating people as data sources. The everyday peace indicators and the wider field of participatory numbers, has incredible potential to help us advocate on behalf of marginalized people, where their needs and priorities may get lost in an increasingly quantitative world that prioritizes numbers for policy change and guidance. Thank you.
1: Going to invite the panelists. Thank you so much, Hamina. That was uh, really uh, inspirational in terms of its roots and certainly its future impact uh, for the field of peace building. And uh, we have gathered here some of your colleagues, and uh, we're very thrilled to have them and also uh, to hear how their own relationship with this kind of work has evolved. So it's really, I'm going to introduce you individually, um, and uh, on Pamina's right is uh, Roger McGenty, who is the professor at the School of Government and International Affairs and the Global Security Institute at Durham University. He edits the academic journal Peacebuilding and he is the co-founder of the Everyday Peace Indicators Project with Pamina. Roger, give us some of your own background in how these indicators and this work is moving the field of peacebuilding from your vantage point.
0: Well, what's quite interesting in terms of thinking about Indicators is how we lead very local lives, all of us. Um, these are lives that are rooted and networked and relational, that they are full of everyday personal interchange and observation. And in a way, that is the stuff of life. That is how we embody and enliven our daily existence. And somehow that story often is written out of how we measure and how we conceptualize peace and transitions towards peace. So the Everyday Indicators project is a way of trying to capture that, of trying to take seriously um, aspects of life that sometimes are easily dismissed as being anecdotal, as being um, too local, and therefore unable to be factored up or to tell us anything about a, a wider area. So the Everyday Peace Indicators project is, is a classic of example of corridor conversations uh, between myself and, and Pamina about how to capture the everyday. Um, and of course that is is wonderfully encapsulated and, and detailed in Pamina's book.
1: Thank you so much for those introductory remarks. We hope to dig down a little further uh, as we uh, hear from all of our presenters here. Our our next uh, expert panelist is Dr. Anthony Juanis St. John, who's a friend of the Institute of many years. He uh, researches international negotiation, mediation, military negotiations, ceasefires, humanitarian negotiations, and peace processes in particular. Uh, he is advisor to the academy here at the Institute and works on civil-military uh, integration. Uh, Anthony, your thoughts.
4: Thank you and good morning. I come to the EPI concept uh, a little bit as an outsider, and when I first heard about Pamina's work, I think we, you introduced yourself to me at a conference a couple of years ago and told me about it personally and through my acquaintance with Roger. Um, I, I recognized that I had been working on the other part of the binary for a long time, on the negative piece. And I will probably continue to do so for a long time because it's so hard to get it and it's so awful when, when we're missing peace, even in the, the negative sense of it, in Gauteng's negative peace sense. But the EPI concept was immediately... Uh, attractive and almost seductive intellectually because of, because of the immediate way in which it calls attention to the shortcomings of our almost imperial and post-colonial ways of trying to help uh, and thinking that we know better than the folks that we are trying to help how to help them I'll stop with that
1: Thank you, Anthony, and appreciate uh, your honesty with uh, how this work has influenced your own. Uh, Our next uh, uh, expert to the panel is a colleague, uh, David Conley, who is uh, the Director of Learning, Evaluation, and Research here at the Institute of Peace. Uh, David joined us about six months ago Uh, from his work uh, in uh, the Netherlands and uh, the UK, and is uh, somebody that we welcome uh, to this area of research and interested in your reflections. Thank you,
5: Kathleen. Um, Well, very much enjoyed the the introductions today and the genealogy. Uh, What struck me, I think, adding to this was that, uh, I guess, in my understanding, you can trace this back even to the 1960s and, you know, the very important work on participatory planning and participatory development. And I think, for me, the main shift is, and we can see this in Pamina's work uh, and, and Roger's, is that you know, maybe we started off where we, we thought of communities or, or the, the uh, local locals um, as part of processes of development, conflict resolution, peace building, and that shift to actually recognize them as drivers um, of, of these types of processes. And that, that is a huge shift um, that the research, the scholarly research is, is really trying to keep up with. Um, and of course, alongside practitioners and, and policy makers. Um, so in that sense, uh, as has been remarked today, this is extremely important um, in, in further recognizing and um, the, the empirical basis uh, for that. Um, just one other comment, if I may, that. Um, you know, when we think about this shift to, perhaps, uh, quantitative, um, and I'm sure we'll come back to this, um, I, I can see that in some ways, but I'm not sure that is certainly always the case. I mean, even with my sort of experience with whether UN agencies a World Bank or conflict-affected governments, is that you see quite a variation there. You see different things going on and not necessarily an arc between sort of qualitative to quantitative. Um, uh, an example of that was a couple of years ago. I led a study in Mali, and it was a short study. And my assumption going into that study was that um, it would be donors who would be driving a more quantitative approach to the evidence base. That was I was sure of it. And um, what I found out was that that was not the case. Um, actually, and this I think speaks a lot to to the work of the EPI. Um, there, there were a number of different drivers uh, determining the types of methods that were being used to monitor and evaluate. Obvious ones that I'm sure you would all think about, which was, of course, capacity, the capacity in the local NGO community, Um, but also seeing the kind of the local and indigenous approach um, to decision-making coming through. So I was proved wrong in that one, Uh, very happy to. Um, And of course, that's just one one country context. I realize if you go to Afghanistan or elsewhere where USIP works, uh, um, you will see different things going on and I think, again, Pamini's work with, with its um, really its foothold at, at the local level, the country level, is so important in understanding the types of com- complex processes which we're seeing in peace building.
1: Thank you so much, David. And uh, Kevin, moving back to you after your opening remarks, what are we missing here? Where are the gaps still to be filled? And how can we do a better job of bridging,
2: uh, as you offered the various binaries. So towards the end of Pamina's book, she uh, refers to something that has been referred to a long time and that is the lack of cooperation, of sequencing, of cooperation, collaboration, sequencing, division of labor that, that often occurs with always well-meaning interventions. Um, and she alludes to the culture of NGOs and INGOs and so forth, and sometimes the lack of transparency, or almost always the lack of transparency, and the competition for, uh, with donors, and often donors are, are funding uh, uh, the same, uh, project from different um, NGOs and so forth and and all of that we have we have seen before we've seen uh, laments about the lack of collaboration and sequencing and timing and division of labor and uh, we've also had some uh, discussions of the peculiar culture of the peace building world that sometimes means that it is very, very difficult for that to occur. so all of that has been refer to, but it seems to me that if we look at EPIs and we think of them as, as long as we don't lose the granularness, if we think of them as being uh, aggregated into security and development and social cohesion and conflict resolution and human rights and so forth, and we uh, connect that, as she does, with different communities and different stages of uh, distance from the actual war or the actual violence, that EPIs could be used as a way of addressing the problem of lack of cooperation, lack of collaboration, by um, not having uh, three or four different um, NGOs or donors work on the same problem in a place where that is no longer the main problem, that maybe social cohesion is a, is, is a problem. So we've seen the laments about lack of collaboration. We've seen the observations about the funny culture of our world that sometimes makes that collaboration hard. But I do think that if we paid attention to what the EPIs are telling us, that would be one way into addressing those problems.
1: Thank you, Kevin. I'm going to come back to Pamina now that you've heard from your colleagues, and I would mm-hmm. ask you to respond to some of their comments and what you see as some of the major challenges ahead.
3: Um, thank you, Kathleen, and thank you for your comments. Um, although, uh, I, I, I think um, there is so much more to be done. Um, and... Uh, we um, have been um, spending an enormous amount of energy and um, uh, money um, on evidence-based work um, and in peace building and uh, establishing um, evidence-based peace building in order to advocate for uh, uh, more money, more resources, more effort towards... Um, peace building and reconciliation work however um, I think it's a it's a real it's a conceptual jump um, an assumption that this is uh, really effective in um, procuring resources um, and also and maybe more importantly in convincing uh, governments that are um, that are the recipients of peace-building um, interventions uh, to actually use this evidence base to change their policies. So uh, this is um, a project that Roger and I are embarking on um, that uh, involves looking at how uh, institutions, um, municipalities, or uh, um, different um, organizations within governments in peace processes uh, digest data, um, in particular local level data, and how that influences um, the, 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 um, uh, their decision-making processes um, and uh, the progression of, of the peace process. And maybe I'll, I'll let Roger say a few more things about that project.
0: Okay. Um, in a sense, Everyday Peace Indicators and many other projects have piloted and engaged in fairly robust methodologies to find, out, to find out granular, bottom-up types of information in societies hopefully transitioning away from conflict. In a sense, we know what the local thinks, but the next step is to work out What happens to that local-level information when it wends its way up through institutions, through ministries, municipalities, INGOs? How is that data treated, that local-level, bottom-up, sometimes community and crowdsourced data? Is it aggregated? Is it edited? Is it ignored? Is it easily dismissed? So, as Pamina says, the next stage of EPI is to engage in institutional ethnographies, to try and track what happens to data as it moves up the chain. And also to ask the question, what happens when bottom-up data meets with top-down data? Because there are issues of power there in that some data is regarded as being more important, more reliable, possibly more authentic um, and i think that, that that's something that that I, one thing i've noticed is that virtually every peace building scholar wants to be an anthropologist when they grow up um so some people like kevin and kathleen have been there before us and, uh, and are probably saying you know if you had have listened to us <laughs> decades ago but Certainly one thing that we're noticing, particularly in the scholarship world, is, is how anthropology and sociology and many of those other very perceptive disciplines like gender studies have a lot to offer in allowing us to access the, the, the relational and the networked nature of peace. And as we think we are seeing with EPI, data is also re- relational and networked.
1: I love that. Anthony, I'm going to turn right to you on that data is also uh, relational. And what, what are the chances of us being able to do this kind of ethnography of institutions and how data actually moves through, uh, you know, from, from an NGO perhaps uh, to uh, a government institution or bilateral
4: Well, I'd say the quick and dirty answer is that it is filtered through the biases of the minds of the people who receive that information. All of us look at information selectively. We look for the things that we most relate to. Sometimes we take some special attention to things that surprise us, but often we are looking to confirm what we already believe, Um, and that's no surprise to anybody who's a student of psychology or social psychology and decision-making. So uh, yes, the the encounter between the two worlds of data is is likely to produce some interesting surprises, maybe some harmonies, but also maybe some clashes um, and some lingering resentments even, because those who do with an idea that they're doing well and doing right and for the right reasons might feel like well we have something to offer that you need and you just don't know it that you need it yet so there, there I imagine there could be some donor and practitioner driven resistance to the idea that people actually know what their lives are like and have an idea about how to make them better um, even if it doesn't look that way to the outsider So it's a fascinating possibility to look at uh, what happens to the EPI-type information as it migrates upward um, and gets translated into funding decisions, project decisions. I don't have any experience on that myself, um, but I would like to bookmark a topic for further discussion perhaps later about an idea that has migrated outward from the peace-building world into government circles uh, here and into the international organizational world uh, about how we assess conflictivity and how we figure out if a country, a locality, a place is about to spill over into violence or is in sort of a stable state um, or is escalating further into conflict. Conflict assessment models are now Uh, There used to be something quite radical. Now now the Pentagon has several of its own. Uh, I've worked with State Department folks to train uh, people from the interagency in the use of conflict assessment models. It's no longer radical. But what EPI shows us is that uh, we have to think still more critically um, about the insider perspective. Are we asking the right questions for the right levels, and it seems to me that we can we can do a lot more to understand conflict and how it's how it emerges uh, and how to prevent it, and then what to do about it if we look more deeply and more closely at the at the participants, victims, and uh, folks most directly affected by by conflict well
1: that's a great challenge, and it's certainly one is at a crossroads and EPI, I think, can add to that that world that we have come to accept as the norm, conflict assessments. And David, with that in mind, uh, do you know of any, or have you been a part of any of this analysis of data on the way up from the local level? You brought up your Mali example, but uh, think through some of the other areas that you've worked in where, where data has been, you think, positively integrated from a local level to a more integrated upper level?
5: Um, I think what we've seen is two things in relation to sort of ev- the, sort of the evidence base and relation between evidence and policy-making, decision-making, is that you know, on the one hand, it is greatly underfunded. You know, at the project level. I mean, most agencies <clears throat> will still struggle to spend maybe 5% of their budgets on sort of m um, and just to give a sense. Um, and that, that's at a local, right, a sort of project level. Um, but at the same time, we have seen, um, I think, in terms of knowledge and learning, um, greater interest, increased interest in the role of evidence in decision-making, both obviously here in the U.S. and thinking back to the U.K. and and the Netherlands, there's a number of important initiatives to indeed you know, try to bring together uh, the different strands of data. And I think on that note, I mean, what I would like to suggest is that maybe we lose the whole top-down, bottom-up. How helpful is that actually? Maybe in some ways it is, but I think it's quite limited. I'm not the first person to say this. But it just struck me in our discussion today, because actually what we see is much more complex than that than bottom-up and top-down. Um, we see different uh, types of data and directions of data. And I mean, we saw this here at USIP, uh, very interesting work on sort of collaborative impact design that the colleagues here have been pioneering in the case studies of uh, Columbia and also the Central African Republic. And there you know, even at that sort of country level, the different types of of data strands and the direction of data happening, and then indeed how through true collaborative um, action how you can bring that up to, do, to donors, who themselves, if I want to generalize, are becoming much more involved in their programming. I mean, this is another shift as well. They're taking as a to generalize a much greater interest in the types of programming that they do. That's very different from, from say, uh, 20 years ago in the peacebuilding field. Um, so I think it's, uh, there's, the challenge is still there, the you know, the, the, the budget, uh, the spending on evidence on data is still relatively low. It's still a challenge, even to to meet sort of five percent, ten percent of budgets. Um, but we are seeing interesting initiatives. Um, for example, the Netherlands um, in, in funding a sort of a knowledge platform with military NGOs, universities, etc., to try and and essentially bring together uh, important studies, research being done, and to bring that directly to uh, foreign affairs. Um, and, and the u k has been involved in other initiatives and also here in, in the u s so so there are i think important efforts uh, to try and do that in terms of concrete examples i can 't think of one right now but, but uh, maybe i 'll come back to one and just, just one last point in this is um you know i 'm interested to see how does the how do the you know the epi everyday peace indicators how can they um fit or align or work within the kind of the project cycle at, at, the, at the local level, um, which still is a driving force, whether we like it or not. You know, the kind of the standard project cycle, how does it indeed fit with it, within that? And when I think about that, I also think about prevention, to what extent the EPIs can have a preventative um, dimension, which indeed you touched upon in your example, I think of uh, Uganda. Um, yeah, so, so I also wanted to raise that um, in, in, in thinking about uh, the uh, how, how the how the indicators are used.
1: Let's pick right up on that. I'm going to ask the panel for their
5: own comments. Yeah,
3: um, yeah uh, that's a great question, and I think also an opportunity to really plug my work with USIP at the moment on Sri Lanka, um, because I mean, you know. Uh, we started this project in 2012 it's um, been a few years but it's a relatively new project so we've been evolving becoming more and more sophisticated I'd like to think Um, and uh, and so initially you know we've just piloted the idea and piloted it as really more of a I would say research methodology than really an applied uh, tool and um, but it became clear very quickly that it, it had potential as an applied tool um, and there was a lot of resonance and interest in the policy uh, community and um, uh, by practitioners and organizations ngos and and donors um, and uh, and so um, an opportunity arose. Um, for uh, us, for me to work with USIP to lead a project in Sri Lanka um, uh, funded by USAID um, to um, to develop reconciliation indicators as a part of uh, policy uh, and, and and planning program planning um, and evaluation of their reconciliation programming um, at a local level, part of their reconciliation programming, not all of it. Um, and, um, and, and this, this has been a really interesting exercise when, I mean, that we're just beginning now, but it's very exciting for me because um, it demonstrates really, I think, the, 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 the full, uh, the comprehensive um, uh, cycle that EPI has uh, the potential to, um, uh, to assist or to provide um, information for. So, um, you know... Uh, uh, EPI or the Everyday Indicators have the potential to influence programming in the sense of um, being able to help guide what programming is implemented, so the design part of uh, design, monitoring, and evaluation. But then also the indicators um, being indicators that can produce quantitative data also have potential for monitoring and then um, eventually the evaluation um, of, of that programming. And so that's what we're doing in Sri Lanka together uh, with USAID and USIP um, to really test whether uh, that's possible and um, and and how much um, added benefit that has. I, I want to say though, um, you ask about the standard project cycles, um, that has been a challenge, and I think I mean we made it very clear that uh, in order to do EPI, we have to think ahead. And I think that's the case, that should be the case in any um, in, in any project. We should be uh, evaluatively thinking, right, from the very beginning. And so, um, using EPI, you do need a little bit of forethought, because you have to go through an, the indicator generation process at the beginning of a project so that you have a baseline so that you can also help guide programming with those indicators and then eventually use them uh, for evaluation. So it's, I think, a real tool for evaluative thinking in, um, in, in, in a project cycle, in a program cycle.
1: Roger, do you want to step into this?
0: Um, you know, I'm tempted to say what, what she said. <laughs> um, but but it, it's a really interesting question, David, and, and I, I was struck because I, I, I don't live in the, in the policy world. I, I have the, the great privilege of, of, of being a, a full-time scholar that this term, the project cycle, in a way is, is so artificial. And, and I can see that it has been naturalized, obviously, in, in, in the policy world, but no one lives according to a project cycle. People live according to conflict cycles or peace cycles or, indeed, a life cycle. And I guess the bigger challenge that, that practitioners and academics have is, is to try and work out how their projects and programs can match more, more succinctly a demand-led way of thinking rather than a supply-led way of thinking because um, if we follow a, p- a project cycle then we're, we're perhaps necessarily we go down the path dependency route um, uh, that is supply led rather than demand led and of course all of this I recognize is much easier said than done you know the most important builder, the most important person in any organization is usually the person who sits in the office next to the director they're the financial officer mm-hmm. and they um, work according to budget cycles and and particular um, time periods. So I recognize that it's easier said than done, but one of the nice things about EPI is that it allows us to to listen to narratives and, and ways of thinking that are disruptive, that are awkward, that differ from the neatly packaged language that I might prefer as a scholar and that many people in this room might prefer as a a practitioner. So one of the things that I I welcome from this project is the disruption that it has caused in in my thinking and I think that's a good thing because it challenges us us all. Anthony, do you
1: want to pick up this project cycle binary of sorts?
4: Let me see if I could put an example around it to see how it could play out. Let's say USAID wanted to put some money into a project that is a donation to Colombia to demobilize FARC soldiers and reintegrate them into society. It will have a laudable goal, it will have a reasonable theory of change, some money attached to it, a project cycle as always maybe some m and built into it. But if it stays at the national level, and there are national level institutions who are in charge of that work in Colombia, then we're missing a great deal. We don't know where those people will go. We don't know what the condition of the communities into which they will try to reintegrate is, and how it will be affected by their arrival if there are jobs waiting for them there or if they will resort to illicit and criminal activities, um, if there are family members that can support them. We don't, I wonder if, if EPI type methodologies could be used to s- take something that is essentially a national level practice, fund this project in that country and turn it into a very finely tuned, locally relevant series of engagements that that work very closely with the data that that are out there and and related to that would be how quickly can we make that data come alive because when when somebody in london or in the hague or in washington decides to spend money on another country's problems then the project cycle does sort of take a life of its own. It has to be spent, the implementers must be found, etc. And And those things are, are uh, I've seen with my own eyes, they take more importance than capability, expertise, dexterity, local contacts. It's who's, who's around sometimes. Um, how, cu- how quickly can we get EPI-type information into a project so that the project actually succeeds? there's some of that in in the work that you did but I wonder if we can discuss it even further in the future
1: Amina do you want to respond to that and then, then I'm going to open it up to our audience
3: okay um yeah I, I, I think I think that's a great example um, we can maybe work on that together uh-huh. uh, um and uh, it's a it's a good question. I mean, and I think it speaks to sort of the pathology of um, the monitoring and evaluation sector, um, and also um, the uh, donor schemes of funding uh, projects and uh, these short timelines and difficulty. Uh, and one of the reasons for um, for this lack of evaluative thinking right? Um, because everything has to happen now <laughs> and um, yesterday and uh, and so um, uh, there's difficult, I mean it, it, it is it makes it difficult for, for forethought um, and uh, spending some time uh, actually um, even conducting conflict assessments in some cases, right? Um, so I, I mean clearly this is not this is a process that requires time. Um, it requires money, um, and uh, and it and it also um, uh, requires some um, will on, on behalf of donors and implementers um, to work in a in a way that they are not accustomed to, um, and and I think so. This is going to be it requires a culture change, um, and a culture shift in existing um, uh, approaches to program design. Um, And it also, I mean, it requires a shift away from thinking about donor priorities, thinking about the priorities of the international community, um, and, um, and perhaps some of these um, fads that sometimes we bring into the things that we fund um, and, and, and um, focusing on, because we want those projects to work, focusing on um, the people that we're actually working with um, and on their priorities and um, being open to be guided by them. So I think it does require a culture shift Shift, And I think it, it requires some, um, uh, not just evaluative thinking, but some, um, a, a space for, for thinking ahead um, that, uh, at the moment, isn't always there. Well,
1: now you've begged the question, but I have to return to our resident anthropologist here. Is it possible to have this kind of culture shift from where you sit?
2: <laughs> yes, and the key word that we've used is disruption. Yes, that's how cultures shift. Thank you.
1: (laughs) So I'm going to open it up now to the audience. Thank you for your interest. And Oh, great, we have a lot of questions. I think I'll take about three at a time uh, to allow the the, uh, panelists to think about it, and maybe I'll start from the front and move back and then come to the uh, right side. And if you would mind, uh, just stand up, introduce yourself,
6: and uh, keep your comment brief. Thank you very much. Uh, hello, my name is Danielle Reef. I'm the chief of the Learning Division in USAID's Center for Democracy, Human Rights, and Governance. Uh, I've worked in many of the same places as Pamina. We've worked together in Colombia, and Uganda, South Sudan, and I was until recently in Sri Lanka trying to bring the Everyday Peace Indicators into our USAID Social Cohesion and Reconciliation work there. Um, very exciting, so much potential. Uh, One of the reasons that I was really motivated to do that is because throughout my uh, experience, 15 years working in conflict-affected environments in the field, uh, so often we would go to talk to communities about peace and reconciliation, and we found that uh, simple linguistic barriers were so enormous in many local languages, just these words, peace and reconciliation, don't exist, and they don't resonate, and you don't even have language, common language to be able to communicate with your beneficiaries about the things that you want to do. And so very, very difficult to get information. Um, and, and Pamina's methodology really provided a way, a really structural methodological approach to try to solicit views and uh, opinions and, and, and feelings from communities. So, so really f- filled an important gap. Anyway... Um, I just wanted, because there's been a lot of commentary about the donor community and how difficult it's gonna be to uh, bridge the gap with donors and how difficult it is to work with donors to change the culture and whatnot, um, I don't necessarily have a question. I just wanted to say that uh, we do care and we are uh, trying to bridge those gaps, but we're faced with some very structural challenges related to the program cycle, related to the way we do business. so just the one that I, I wanted to mention was that you know, we, we go out with solicitations for your 10 or $15 million social cohesion project and everybody writes big fancy proposals and we sign a contract or a grant with a big organization to do all kinds of work. And in order to win that solicitation, they've had to articulate very clearly all the activities that they'll do and where they'll do them and be very specific. And then uh, the EPIs, tell us that, wait a minute, maybe in local communities we should do more of this or less of that or something different, and our implementing partners come back and say, but wait a minute, we signed a contract with you (laughs) that says we've already agreed to do all these other things. So anyway, there are challenges, but I personally am very excited about Pamina's work, and um, yeah, I just wanted to voice my support.
1: Uh, Thank you so much, we appreciate that, and uh, really from one of the funders, please.
7: My name is Kim McLean, and I'm the Regional Director for the Americas with Global Fund for Children, a small foundation based here in DC that gives small grants to grassroots organizations that work with children and youth. I feel like I'm coming in and
1: out, my apologies. Yeah, you might
7: be. All right, got it. <laughs> um, and uh, we are uh, developing and hoping to be able to, to undertake some investment in Colombia around peace building with children and youth in that environment. Um, And I'm really intrigued by these indicators. And the question I have is uh, when you work with the community, with community members and representatives in the community to develop this tool, that's a real investment of their time um, to participate in that, Um, not to mention, of course, all the people then who participate as uh, uh, givers of data when the tools are actually applied and used. Um, How have you seen that those people who invested their time to participate in this process have found this useful? Have it, has it become an indica- are these indicators then useful at that local level for work that, that they are leading? And what ways besides um, uh, being able to support the extraction of data, of quality data for better decision-making by donors and those outside the communities, or as the communities, of course, I'm sure see it as, well, if we can get money from this, we'll participate. So linked to those strings of getting money. But are there other ways that these are useful at
1: that local level as well? Thank you
8: so much. Next question. Okay. Uh, I'm John Hoven. I'd like to follow up on David's, uh, David's question about how should EPIs fit in the project cycle and Pam's particular example of going back to visit one place three years after and finding that one of these indicators, walking safely alone at night, had become obsolete. Uh, In the normal, everyday decision-making, this sort of real-time learning and decision-making is commonplace. And uh, it seems like uh, that might be a useful direction to go here as well. Instead of taking these EPIs as known and firm, useful indicators here and now, that we follow up on your methodology for developing them and use the current EPIs as a starting point for what may be relevant and useful here and now and uh, uh, asking the questions for what is the evidence for what really matters to us here and now. Coming up with our, and, and, and our own indicators may not even be quantitative. I mean, the, the fact of someone saying, Nobody feels safe to walk at night. Is compelling evidence, even though it's not measurable.
1: Thank you, John. Next question.
9: Hi, my name is Sarah Cobb, and I really enjoyed the discussion, the presentation, the book, etc. I have a question. I had lunch on Tuesday with a group of folks uh, from Afghanistan who were in the part of it, working on the peace commission there, and um, they were telling me about why the negotiations weren't working with the Taliban. I said, "Well, have you talked to them?" They said, no. Um, and why haven't they talked to them? That's interesting. And there's uh, uh, military and State Department folks at the table. And, of course, it comes down to the construction of these folks' as enemy, right, which precludes the possibility of engaging them. So the question I have for you is how do you imagine the EPA, EPI, I'm sorry, um, navigating the discursive fields that are already in place which constitute some locals as legitimate uh, sources of information and other locals as enemies uh, or uh, combatants or folks that can't be um, considered.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. We're going to go all the way to the back of the room, and I'm going to continue the questions. You all have a lot to answer for here, but I think it's important. Uh, we have one at the very back, and then I'll come to
10: you. Hi, I'm Lauren Owing. I'm a director uh, with IBTCI in the Crisis, Conflict, and Governance practice. We do a lot of um, we hold a lot of m and support contracts with USAID. Um, I think the, the, as a former peace practitioner, I can see how EPI is extremely useful at the project and implementation level, because it allows you to put a lot of nuance into your programming, which is, in peace building, is community focused. I think my question now, though, is I think, I guess, moving up, and how does it move up to the donor? To what extent are the findings that you have going through an EPI process comparable or generalizable? Because at the end of the day, unfortunately, we make decisions by this community needs interventions more than this one. This is how we're going to prioritize. I think this also gets to, Pamina, your point about how you could use EPI for design. So thinking more at a strategy, a country strategy, or a program design level, to what extent are these findings generalizable? To, to, because program design is not at the local ed level, project design is.
11: Thank you, Laura. And I think we had a question right here. Thank you. Thank you, um, Esra Hadar Jennings Randolph, uh, senior fellow at USIP. Um, fascinating research. Congratulations on the book. I'll read it as soon as I can. Um, great work. Uh, my question is a little bit uh, like a follow up to what Sarah said and an and, and issue that Anthony raised. Um, can, how uh, how can you use or or did you think about ways of using API um, in designing um, interventions or like dialogue interventions for example? How can they be used? And especially, I'm I'm um, asking this question because uh, like you may have different locals, right? Uh, different, um, but you may also have very different. Uh, sort of perceptions of uh, local peace indicators within the same community. So, like threat perceptions, for example, or different um, processes of social influence. Uh, I don't know, biases, agenda setting, etc. will get different parts of the same community to value different things and to... Uh, perceive things differently i'm just i'm from turkey and just one example would be at the community level with there are a lot of syrian refugees right now for example and there are a lot of tensions at the community level Um, but if you ask people everybody would agree that the place has become less peaceful and they would blame the refugees for that but um, and they will not leave their houses in the evening because they're afraid of you know, running into some refugees, et cetera, they think they're dangerous. But is this really, um, you know, how do we assess this kind of indicator? There? Because there is also a lot of prejudice and bias associated with that, right? Uh, so how do, we, uh, how do we use EPI, in other words, to engage people in a dialogue process around, around these issues?
1: Very interesting. Is there any other comment or question because I'm going to then turn it back to this panel and I'm going to ask you uh, to just take any one of these questions and we'll see if any aren't covered Uh, and I'm going to begin with Kevin to uh, see if you might take one of these questions on and if you need any reminding I have them written down but I'm sure in your mind and we're going to just walk backwards. And Pamina, you will have the last word.
2: Well, I, I want to reflect on, on my colleague Sarah's comment, which is you can't have a dialogue if you're disallowed from speaking to some of the p- participants. And you know some of the strictures of the war on terror and who you can talk to and who you can't talk to, at least as an American, uh, makes a lot of the work that, that we do in places like Afghanistan or in Iraq, uh, virtually impossible. Um, you know, the, the, if, 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 if one is breaking the law by speaking to a Taliban person, uh, then you might as well pack up and go home or find workarounds, but the workarounds will always be disruptive Right? They'll always be in some way rubbing against the grains and the and the rules. Um, and uh, yeah, that's a problem. And some of us in this field, I know, routinely break the law in who we who we speak to. David? Thanks. Um, well,
5: there's been a couple of questions, I think, and sort of observations from Mark around the around the project cycle and and indeed the constraints that that many of the donors. Um, I mean, I think what's interesting is just maybe just to pick up on some of those points is that you know The project cycle really has evolved over the years means many different things in many different places and uh, We've talked about Afghanistan already that just one example Sierra Leone being another where you know really in terms of of bottom-up now to use that phrase are sort of citizen-led forces community driven we have seen Structures which maybe come from the outside and prescriptions very much being adapted Uh, to the local context and a very clear sense of agency there in those processes. Um, Now, if you go to other contexts, and I think this is where we need to be, of course, uh, be mindful, where where war has had a truly devastating impact. Um, In in that immediate sort of environment, certain things will not be possible, right, because of the continued threats, uh, the insecurity, um, the trauma, the lack of capacity. So, of course, that, you know, that reminder of different things will be, will be possible in terms of what we can ask of the conflict affected, what can be expected when it comes to, to data, and as the example, I think, uh, from, from Turkey, that in some of these contexts, you know, it's the whole collection of data, whether it's done from, the, from, from communities upwards or from wherever, is, is incredibly sensitive, and in some cases impossible, actually. Um, so, you know, I'm sure the, the EPI is, is already addressing that, that, that in these types of contexts which, you know, where, where stability uh, is not present. And actually, the, the gathering of data by anyone um, is, is incredibly difficult. And, and could, you know, it could add uh, to the threats um, in, in inadvertently. Um, I'll, I'll, pass, I'll pass on. If I
4: understand EPI correctly, I think I misunderstood it years ago. Was that there were a set of <laughs> indicators that you could just put on a list and go into a village and check them off? These these are the indicators that, uh, right? The <laughs> but the, the the indicators are generated by engagement and dialogue with people who have real experience, and also, to Ezra's point, possibly real distortions in the way they think, as any human being might have. So it, it is an interesting question how you address, how, how you go beyond one overwhelming, or overbearing voice or uh, a dominant story that people are telling that may or may not be based on, on real facts, uh, but that reflect stereotypes and prejudices. I wonder about that. Um, and what the level of conflictivity is in a particular area, would that, would that impact how people talk about the indicators? Um, I imagine that there could be a way one day in which, you know, before you do any kind of project, you, just the way we check the weather before we go out and the weather is millions of data points, we understand what is the weather conflict-wise? What is the weather in a, in a place where we want to do good work? and we bring the right things to do them because they are matched to the situation. Sounds like people are trying to do that and we still have structural problems in the way we do that, but that, that sounds like that's the way we need to do this eventually, real-time indication of what's what's required.
0: Roger. Uh, well, <coughs> I'll follow up directly on, on that, Anthony, and, and respond to John's question, which was, exactly on that, the need for real-time indicators, because as as you said, John, these societies are fluid, and although as as scholars and practitioners, we we would like to engage in longitudinal measurement, and we would like to see how particular indicators change over time, societies don't work like that. Um, The indicators that, that people find most resonant change and I think one approach to that is through technology. And I know that there have been attempts to develop apps that will allow people to um, to give that real-time feedback on social or humanitarian uh, conditions. Of course, there are problems or, or, or possible challenges to that. And that is whether the app can be captured, in a sense, whether dominant voices um, capture that. And, and that gets back to... To what you were saying Sarah I mean I was very struck by the focus group work from EPI that there was a discursive infrastructure um, and, and that was laced with power issues of gender issues of of age issues of whether one was for the government or against the government in a particular location what we did get at though were different sorts of narratives. Narratives that were um, counter-cultural, counter that disrupted the official narrative. In a sense, the official narrative would tell communities that you're, the big issue facing you, community, is A, B, and C. And through everyday peace indicators, communities were able to tell us, actually, the issues mm-hmm. facing us were D, E, and F. Mm-hmm. I think that was good. But I think what we're never going to get, or, or I don't think our methodology will get at, is the hidden transcript. Um, there's a reason for that, because it's hidden. <laughs> and people go out of their way to, to hide it. But, the, you know, we all play multi-level games in our discourse, and, and it, it does seem very difficult to get to that hidden transcript.
3: I'm going to disagree. Um, But I'll get to that. I'll try and answer some of the questions that weren't um, answered by my esteemed colleague. Um, uh, So the indicators, your question about the indicators being useful at the local level, um, I think that they could be. Um, One of the challenges is that, you know, what are we using, and I guess one of the questions is what are we using these indicators for, right? And up until now, we've used these indicators to try to advocate for communities. And who are we advocating to? Well, donors, governments, NGOs that require some kind of le- level of rigor and um, and and process and systematization. So, so so that systematic um, um, require that requirement for for systematic methodology. Um, uh, requires some kind of technical expertise, and that makes it more difficult for communities themselves to be able to do this process. That doesn't mean that they wouldn't be able to use the indicators for, to advocate for their needs, um, but uh, I'm reluctant to say that you know, this is a tool that can be left to communities to do on their own. Um, we have, however, used it um, in a very uh, applied and exciting way using PhotoVoice, um, and I don't know if anyone's familiar with Photovoice, but it's a participatory process of um, using photography um, to amplify local voices. And um, we've we uh, trans- uh, we did, we did um, a project in Colombia, um, which is still ongoing. There's an exhibit. There was an exhibit in September in Bogota, and there will be an exhibit in uh, February in, in Cartagena, um, and then in the Montes de María region, um, and uh, where villagers. Um, photograph their indicators. And um, and that was uh, a really interesting and engaging way of um, using this as a tool for discussion and dialogue um, nationally, in Bogota or in regionally, in Cartagena, um, but also locally. We'll be doing exhibits in their local municipalities as well as in the villages. And um, so the, the, the idea being that this can also be a peace-building tool beyond just a Scientific one. Um, uh, I wanted to answer also the question about um, the comparable or generalizable issue um, that was brought up in the back of the room. I sorry, I didn't catch your name. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, um, EPI is really it's a methodology, a methodology that can fit into a variety of different research de- or evaluation designs, and um, and so. Um, the everyday indicators um, have the potential, possibly, to be scalable. And um, we are testing this uh, with uh, funding from the Carnegie Corporation at the moment in uh, Colombia. Um, again, in Colombia, doing a lot of work in Colombia. Uh, in And um, it was a fortuitous event, actually, that happened. We were approached by um, an in- Indigenous, uh, a group of indigenous activists, um, that wanted uh, to build a a bottom-up barometer of the peace accord because they felt that they couldn't trust. I mean, there's been um, a history of mistrust between indigenous groups and the government, and they felt that they couldn't trust the government um, and uh, and its its accountability tools and um, and its statements about its impact, and so they um, they they. uh, um, approached us to build this bottom-up barometer, and we uh, agreed to join forces and to test whether um, whether we can scale uh, the everyday indicators to be able to say something for an indigenous group. So we're testing this for the Pasto indigenous group in Nariño, in Putumayo, and um, there's a, we have a working paper, which I'm happy to share. If you email me, I'm happy to share that. Uh, but I'm 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 cognizant of time, so I will move on um, to uh, the other question, um, which I think is uh, was was yours, the um, my colleague, other senior Jennings Randolph fellow, um, who 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 asked a really interesting question, one that I'm struggling and dealing with a lot right now in uh, this Sri Lanka work, um, because um, because how can we use not just the everyday indicators as a uh, for, for dialogue. But also, how do we reconcile indicators that um, are possibly offensive, right? And racist. Um, And and, um, because, you know, um, communities aren't necessarily always politically correct in their identification of reconciliation or or peace. Um, and, and, um, And what do we do with that, right? Um, so we're 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 um, seeing this in the in the south um, in the sinhala majority communities who, for them, reconciliation means you know that um, Muslim gives up a seat on the bus for them and um, that they are seen as being superior to Muslims. That is reconciliation, or that there are no Muslims, um, and <laughs> um, and and so uh, so that's been a struggle but also a really fascinating thing to observe and something that um, we um, have been adapting to see how we can use that to also inform programming, right? Um, And so instead of using everyday indicator process in the sort of traditional way of using indicators as a basis of questions and surveys. being able to track how those that iterative process of the Iverdy indicator collection over time, how those indicators might change with interventions that deal with these issues um, that that people um, uh, or, or these different ways that people are, are conceptualizing and understanding reconciliation. Um, and, that, um, and that conflict with the way that we understand reconciliation. and... Um, and how we want them to reconcile, right? Being able to use that to influence the programming, I think, is uh, has has huge potential. So, um, so that's uh, that's what we've been uh, looking at doing, and um, and and something that's been a really really interesting and um, uh, I think important learning experience in the trajectory of of the everyday indicators.
1: Thank you, Pamina, and I want to thank. Uh, all of our uh, panelists, Roger, Anthony, David, and Kevin. Uh, What an amazing morning and and thought-provoking from discourses of culture to methodology that's disruptive, that creates dialogue, that is discursive uh, definition of power and looks at different narratives. Uh, We have a lot to continue to think about and work on collaboratively. I want to thank uh, George Mason University for uh, your support in this effort, and thank you to all uh, for your attention and engagement. We want to invite you to a reception now, and uh, it's just right outside this hallway. Really, for uh, to benefit from this community of practice, uh, this is the relationship building here is key, and uh, we're grateful for it every day. So. Thank you all and thank you for coming.
0: Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org/podcasts.